For scripture reading, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Acts with me. Be reading from Acts chapter 19. If you want to use a phone, you want to use a paper Bible, however you get there. Let me pray for us before I read our scripture. Father, Lord, we do want to praise you for your amazing grace. You are a God who is so full of love, you give it away freely. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to better understand your grace to us as a church this morning, to us as individuals. Pray that you'd take these scriptures, pray that they would be strength, they would be food for our souls. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to be preaching through three chapters of the book of Acts this morning. It won't take any longer than normal, but for scripture reading, I would like you to see the middle passage. And so I'm going to be in Acts chapter 19, and next week, I want to begin preaching carefully verse by verse through 1 Timothy. And so I've taken a couple of weeks ahead of time to introduce who Paul is, who Timothy is, and now I want to introduce the Ephesian church. I think one of the challenges of hearing the scriptures is believing that it applies directly to our lives and to our churches. And so I want you to think of Ephesus and the church we're about to see as a church that maybe you would visit. If you were going on vacation somewhere, and maybe you sat down over lunch, and were getting to know the people there, and you said, hey, tell me, how did this church come to be? What's your story? Why is there a church in Ephesus? And in the grace of God, he has recorded it for us in history. So imagine that you're getting this over lunch. I'm going to read the center story of my sermon today, and we're going to go from there. Acts chapter 19 starting in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So you can imagine the church is growing as they hear the word of God taught by someone who loves people and who loves the word, and you can think, man, this is a great foundation for the church, and then it gets crazy. Look at verse 11. 
It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled." And among many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's where the Ephesian church came from. That's the beginning of the story that continues in the book of 1 Timothy that I want us to focus on starting next week. I believe that 1 Timothy is a book that will bless our church as we make it our goal to follow God's instructions for the church. I believe that it will help us draw closer to Jesus and to be encouraged. I believe it will help us serve one another. I believe it will help us tell more people about Jesus. And my prayer is that just like Paul equipped Timothy to serve his church, we would see the next generation equipped and serving within our church. Before I introduced Paul and Timothy, I took two weeks to talk a little bit about gender, how God has made us male and female equally in God's image, but with different complementing strengths. And we will come back to that topic in the book of 1 Timothy. If you missed those messages, you can find them on YouTube or you can ask me and I'll send you a link to one of them. Like I mentioned a second ago, I took a week to introduce the Apostle Paul, who is the writer of 1 Timothy. More than anything, I want you to understand his heart. That he's a man who knows the scriptures well, but he's also a man who loves people deeply. And his heart and his passion was to tell everyone the good news that Jesus, God's Son, died for our sins and rose from the dead so that anyone who repents of their sin and believes in him will be saved. Paul is a church planter. He went all over the ancient world teaching the word and establishing local churches. He loved to go places where Jesus had not yet been proclaimed to be the first person to tell them about the good news of what God was doing in Christ. If we believe that God is still establishing his church, that God is still spreading the good news of Jesus, 
then we can rest in the fact that the God who used Paul to plant churches and equip them so that they would grow is at work among us and will work around us and through us to do the same type of work. That God will give us the spiritual gifts that we need to build his church and that God can establish the next generations of leaders within our church. And I believe that we can trust him to do that and pray that he will do that as we watch Paul establishing churches that grow. Last week, I introduced Timothy, the young man who served as the leader in Ephesus. Timothy was mentored by Paul. His heart was to make sure that nothing stood in the way of preaching the gospel. He loved people deeply. He loved non-Christians deeply. And he put their needs and their concerns above his own in a way that I pray that we would imitate. Paul sent Timothy to the churches that he planted to help them be faithful to all of God's truth. Not only in Ephesus, although that ended up being Timothy's long-term assignment. When Paul was writing the letter to the Corinthians, he tells them, That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So more than two people who know what's true, who are smart, who could maybe win an argument, I want you to think of Paul and Timothy as two people who deeply love the lost. They deeply love non-Christians. They're not someone that's establishing a clique. They're not someone who's creating a bizarre subculture. They are going boldly and broadly to tell others who do not know Jesus, who would think that they are strange and odd, that Jesus loves them. And so the last thing that I want to do before we dive into this book that I think helps us understand what the church is and what the church should be like is I want us to have a close-up picture of how Paul plants a church. To remember the miracle of God saving people and making unrelated people with all kinds of differences into a family that deeply loves each other. And I think so often, at least in my life, I don't know if this is true of you, but it's easy for me to think that this worked in a different place because everything was better there. That they didn't have the same problems and challenges and trials that you and I have, and so of course this worked. And yet, what you find as you look at the churches that Paul planted is in many ways they are just like us. And the hope that God would do a work here is tied up in the fact that God did a work there, and I want us to see it in detail. And I want to show you three things this morning. I want to show you that this church was founded on the word of God. And what I mean by that, I mean, I mean it was founded on the scriptures. It was founded on how God had worked in history and what he taught to be true. Then I want to show you that this church that believed the word of God had to fight to put Jesus first in their hearts. That it wasn't automatic that they didn't stay faithful by doing nothing, but instead the word continued to challenge them and confront them and bless them, and that they had to fight to put Jesus first in their hearts and in their church. And number three, I want to show you that they had to work to establish faithful leadership 
that helped them stay faithful to the word. So you can imagine it kind of goes in a big circle. It starts with being founded on the word. It continues with being faithful to the word. And it ends with faithful leadership that will continue to help the next generation be faithful to the word. So let's look first at the early days. Go back a chapter. I I read from Acts chapter 19. I'm going to take just a moment and look at Acts chapter 18 and show you the very early days of this church in Ephesus. Beginning with verse 18, says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And at Crunchea, they had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went on to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So pause for just a second. In verse 19, it mentions how Paul is going to the synagogue and reasoning with the Jews. And you can think of synagogue as like attending a church service. It's a building where they kept the scriptures. Most people did not have their own copy of the word of God. Nobody had phones. You couldn't just look it up on the internet. You couldn't go to a local library. The synagogue was the place where the copies of scripture were kept. And so regularly, the Jews would assemble to publicly read the scriptures, to talk about them, and to help other people learn how to read them and study them and live them. However, they don't know about Jesus yet. And when Paul goes to a new city, if there is a synagogue there, the first thing he does is he starts with people that know the word of God. He wants to persuade them that Jesus has fulfilled the entire Old Testament, that Jesus is the hope that they have been longing for. And so every place that he goes, he starts here because he wants to establish Jesus as the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And so he starts with people who are already familiar with the word. But he doesn't always stay there. The reality is that people didn't always accept the good news of Jesus. Sometimes those who knew the most about the word of God were the ones who would reject him first. Paul himself had done that. He was someone who knew the word. And when he heard about Jesus, he hated him. Until Jesus stopped him in his tracks, opened his eyes, and he realized that he was nothing more than a religious hypocrite rejecting the salvation that God was offering him. Paul thought that he could be a good person and that his good works would earn him favor with God. And Jesus stopped him in his tracks and humbled him. And Paul, in his letter to Timothy, says, I realized like, I was the worst. I was the chief of sinners. And because he understood the grace of God that forgave him for his sins, he preached this message proudly, saying, if there's hope for me, there's hope for you. I was reading yesterday, you know, I didn't know that DRC was going to sing Amazing Grace in our service. It's a hymn that's enormously familiar. But I was reading about the author yesterday. Uh, and many of you know his story. Many of you know how he was a slave trader. Uh, he openly admitted that he believed he was the chief of sinners. He had this crazy dramatic conversion. And, and where I was reading yesterday, I talked about how he went into this prison. And most of the people here, you got to understand, he, he's writing in the 1700s. And most of the people there were highway robbers, bandits, pickpockets, and prostitutes, and he had about a hundred people 
that were in prison. And at this time, like, prisons then were not what they are now. The justice system was not fair then. Even if it's not fair now, it was worse then. And when you were convicted of a crime, you were often publicly beaten. They would cane you in a way that the entire community could watch. And so John Newton going into a prison then is even crazier than people who do prison ministry now. Because the shame of being publicly incarcerated, there's no privacy. Everyone can see you and all of the details that you would prefer to keep hidden. And so John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, goes in and proclaims to a hundred people who are full of shame because of their public punishment, regardless of what their crime was, they are humiliated in how they're treated and publicly beaten. And, and John Newton goes in as a pastor. He's, he's clean. He looks upstanding. And he says to this group of a hundred people, I want you to know I'm standing here in front of you as the chief of sinners. That I was a drunk. That, that I was a slaver. And God changed my life, led me to repentance. And I don't stand here as a pastor that has it together preaching to you that I'm better than you and you need to imitate me. I'm standing here in front of you as a recipient of the grace of God saying, if God forgave me, he can forgive you. And that's what Paul is doing here. He starts with the people that love the word of God, or at least they said they love the word of God but begins preaching a message of grace. He doesn't stay long with his first trip in Ephesus. He reasons with the Jews. He tries to persuade them, but he doesn't have a long time, and so he leaves. And as he leaves, this other person named Apollos, down in verse 24, comes to Ephesus, and he's an eloquent man, and he's competent in the Scriptures. And he spoke and he taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus, but he didn't know that Jesus had died for our sins and risen from the dead. So all he's doing is he's saying, God's about to do something. Deal with the sin in your life. Repent, find grace, find forgiveness, and be open to what God is going to do. And people receive his message well. They believe that he understands the scriptures, but he's not preaching the full message because he doesn't know it yet. And so a couple of people, Paul's friends Priscilla and Aquila, take him aside and they explain things more accurately. It's verse 26. They show him the scriptures. They tell him the rest of the history of what Jesus has done. And his ministry continues to lay this foundation of knowing the word of God as it relates to Jesus Christ. And so chapter 19, where we started our scripture reading, Paul comes to Ephesus and he finds these disciples And many of them had listened to Apollos but missed out on what Jesus had done for them. And so he explains again how Christ had died for their sins. That they had been baptized into a baptism of repentance, but they needed to believe that Jesus was their Savior. See, Christianity is not a faith that says, I'm sorry for the bad things that I've done. I'm going to try to change. Christianity is a faith that says, Jesus took the punishment for all of the bad things that you've ever done. And not only did he take that punishment, but he died and rose again and promises to give you new life. 
And so the baptism of Jesus is saying, I believe that I died with Christ and that it's Christ has been raised. I believe that he will give me new life. And yes, it's founded on the scriptures, but it's not just knowledge about the Old Testament. It's faith that work of Christ was done for each of us. And so in the early days of the church, they have this foundation of knowing the scriptures. Verse 8, chapter 19 says, Again, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, believing that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And then verse 9 says that after some were stubborn within the synagogue, he went more broadly to those who didn't know the Old Testament at all. And daily, for two years... He proclaimed the word of the Lord to both Jews and Greeks. Okay, so a couple things that I want us to see very clearly here. There's a daily discipline in knowing the word of God. He doesn't try to establish a weekly service. He tries to establish daily relationships with people so that they know the word of God and they know it well. It's not just a verse or two and an encouraging message to get you through the week. It's a way of life that transforms you from the inside out so that as you have this life in Christ, you begin to understand what God is doing. And the foundation of this church that we're going to see in 1 Timothy is this daily reasoning from the scriptures to show that Jesus is fulfilling all of God's promises. But then things get difficult. And in fact, I stopped scripture reading before they got really bad. I read the passage and I've kind of summarized it in point two is that there's a revival and a riot at year three. Okay, we we would like to think that revival would not be necessary three years into the life of a church, right? If you've got the Apostle Paul as your founding pastor, and he's faithfully taught other people the word of God, and, and there's a growing community of people devoted to the word, you would think that they would be spiritually mature and healthy, and it would be onward and upward, right? And yet what we find is that it was a fight to remain focused on Christ. That even for this church that had a healthy beginning, that it was not easy for them to maintain their focus on Jesus and that there were things within their lives that competed for their love, that made them unfaithful to Christ. And what it took was this insane encounter with demons for their church to change. Now there are so many things that we could have talked about in this text that I, that I don't think are that critical for us as a church. Uh, some people wonder, you know, why don't we see demons today? And honestly, I think the biggest reason is because Satan is very happy to let us go about our lives living like he doesn't exist. He doesn't want to freak us out and make us seek the Lord. He wants us to be comfortable ignoring that he's even real. But in the ancient world, people believed in spirits. And in the ancient world, demonic possession was real. Even those who didn't know Christ sought freedom from, from demons. And this man goes about trying to use the name of Jesus without actually knowing Jesus. And instead of having victory over Satan, he's utterly defeated and humiliated. And friends, I want to say a little bit of knowledge about Jesus is a dangerous thing. It can make you feel safe. It can make you feel secure. But if you don't know him, 
If you know about him, but you've not experienced the forgiveness of sins and the life that he has to offer you, you will not have power in your life over Satan. And the humiliation and defeat that these Jewish exorcists experience is a warning for you that your future is in danger unless you know Jesus Christ. And as this story got around and and people heard, verse 17 says, Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. They recognized that even demons knew the name of Jesus, and the demons were afraid of Christ and no one else. Verse 18 says, Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who'd practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Friends, I don't think there are a lot of people in our church that could do this. We're not a religious culture. So the practice of the occult and magic is not part of who we are. I would be shocked if somebody in our church said, you know, I've got to tell you something, Pastor. Secretly, I'm a Satanist. I doubt it. I I don't think so. But here's what I think helps. The fact that it's easy to have a divided heart and to think you're fine. I don't believe that the Christians in Ephesus thought that they had a problem until this happened. They were baptized into Christ. They would have said, Jesus is my Savior. They would have maybe even said, I am wholly his and he is wholly mine. And yet, they continued doing things that were totally contradictory to their faith in Christ. And when they saw the danger of dabbling with Jesus, they examined their lives and realized they were not as sold out as they thought they were. That they were, in a sense, playing church. And the fear of humiliation and the fear of danger drove them to their knees. And all of a sudden, the things that were valuable to them, they no longer cared about. They literally set them on fire as they feared the name of Jesus. They recognized that Jesus was not only their Savior, but their Lord. And and I've heard many people say things like, you know, you don't have to be sold out as a Christian. And I suppose in one sense that's true, but it's also a terribly dangerous place to live. If you're not devoted to Christ, the things that you are devoted to will lead you away from him. And so I want to say to us as a church, I passionately have preached how much we need to be founded on the word. That's why I preached through Ezra this past summer, because I believe as we're devoted to the scriptures and as we follow them, we'll be blessed. But knowing the word is not enough. Knowing the word has to lead us to a place where our hearts are devoted to the Lord Jesus as our savior and Jesus invades our lives so that nothing is more sacred than Christ. That we leave everything on the altar when we worship King Jesus. But their devotion was the beginning of division within the city. I'm not going to read all of chapter 19, but what happens as these people leave their idols and burn their books is that the people who had been selling them idols created a riot in the city of Ephesus. So, Verse 25 
Demetrius, a a silversmith, gathers this crowd and he issues a speech and he says, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So this guy, not a believer in Jesus, understands that those who believe in Jesus are no longer going to buy idols, and that the spread of Christianity is threatening the local economy. And he wants it to stop. And people who love money, and who doesn't, become angry, and this little meeting where he makes this little political speech turns into a riot. The rest of the chapter describes how they shouted for hours with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they're angry and they're afraid because they're about to lose money. And so they're violent and they cause this horrible commotion. They're in danger of the Romans coming and violently stopping this riot. And so the proconsul comes out and he says, guys, you need to stop freaking out. You need to calm down. We're in danger of being charged with rioting. And if we do this, things could get ugly really fast. And so the devotion of Christians caused problems locally. Why, why am I stressing that? Because, friends... I have often felt like if I just knew the word of God and did it, I would be blessed and things would be easier. I think that's a normal assumption. It's a normal assumption to say, look, God, I've done the thing I'm supposed to do, so give me the life that I want. And what happens in the church is that after the revival, where people go forward and burn their books and say, I'm all Jesus's and he's all mine and and we're all in. After that, things get hard and things get costly and people begin to be afraid and your neighbors start to say nasty things about you because apparently you don't care about their jobs and their welfare because you're not buying idols anymore and you don't care about the local culture because you won't go to the shrine of Artemis anymore. And your faith that you thought would bless you is creating division. Friends, sometimes that cuts really close within our families and within our communities. Sometimes faithfulness to the word will cause people to say evil things about you. And sometimes when that happens, you grow bitter and you start to be feeling like you've got a a superiority complex. Like, I am faithful and no one else is. You get this martyr complex. I'm not trying to say that we should, we should feel like we're any better. All I'm trying to say is faithfulness to the word often causes division and things get harder. Don't be proud, but don't be discouraged. Expect that this will happen. And the question is, if we anticipate difficult days ahead in our lives and in our church, how do we prepare for it? What do we do to get ready? What do we do so that this difficulty doesn't destroy the church. There always will be difficulty, that is for sure. How do we prepare for it? Well, we've looked at the early days, how the church is founded on the word. 
We've looked at a revival and a riot in year three, how they struggled to put Jesus first in their lives. Now I want to look at Paul's tearful farewell, which might, you might feel like, okay, things are bad, so Paul's going to stick around for a while. Actually, no, he leaves right away. And why is that? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. Partly, his passion is to start new churches, and he'd already been there for three years. But partly, the leadership of the church had to weather the storm and prepare the next generation in the storm so that they would have the strength to continue preaching the gospel of Jesus and growing mature in the faith. And Paul's leaving gave room for local leaders to grow. I was listening to a guy, his first name is Mac. He was a missionary in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, and all throughout the Middle East, it's a tough place to plant a church, and it's a tough place to see the church grow. By the grace of God, the church is growing some in Iran, and we're seeing God do some exciting things throughout the Middle East. But in Mac's church, he labored for about seven years with almost no fruit. Almost no one coming to Christ, almost no one growing in faith. And then what every missionary and pastor hopes for happened, and his church started to explode. It started to grow. It started to, to see people come to Christ, and it started to see people mature in Christ. And as he was raising up leaders, he realized that his presence there was hindering the growth of the church. That if there was a meeting, they wouldn't put their own ideas forward. They would ask him for his. And so the longer he stayed, the harder it was for the church to grow. So he did the last thing that any successful missionary wants to do, but the one thing he believed he needed to do, he left. And that's what Paul does. He doesn't rescue them from this trouble. They're going to have trouble no matter how long he stays. And so he bids them farewell. Now, I don't think leaving your church is the solution for establishing the next generation. Just pause right there. That's not what I mean. What I do mean is he establishes a leadership that helps guard and protect the health of the church. So if they're founded on the word, they fight to stay faithful to Jesus. As they say farewell to Paul, they lean on the leadership that he had established there. So chapter 20, verse 1, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Now I'm going to read a couple of verses throughout this chapter. This is where he says goodbye to them really permanently. Uh, he writes a couple of letters to them. He may have visited once or twice, but he never spends time with them again like he had in chapter 19. And yet the church was firmly established and grew because of how they'd established faithful leadership. So I want to show you a couple things throughout this. If, if you go to verse 17, as Paul prepares to, to leave, he stops at this port and, and calls the Ephesian elders to come to him. And so the leadership that he had helped establish came to him, and he begins to give him the speech, reviewing how he had conducted his life and ministry among them, how he'd faithfully taught them for years, how he had led them to be a church where Jews and Gentiles loved each other, in spite of the fact that they didn't love each other outside of the church. Verse 24, he said, 
I do not account my life as any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And behold, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And he gives them three commands as he says goodbye. He says, look, I've told you everything you need to know. My presence here is not going to help you anymore. Verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So he's talking to the spiritual leadership of the church. His first command is pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. They're not just having a group Bible study. They're actually intimately involved with the lives of their members. And their care for the flock is to faithfully teach them the word, but to recognize the dangers of false teaching that will come up. Verse 31, he says, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he says, Pay careful attention, leadership. Be alert. He says that there are going to be fierce wolves that come in among them that will not spare the flock. He says, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so they need to be alert, recognizing that dangers will come to the church, that coasting is not an option. And finally, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So the elder's responsibility in this church is to know the people and to know the word. And knowing the people and knowing the word is how Paul intends for this church to not only be established, but continue for generations as they faithfully teach people what the word is and what it says. Now, there are a couple things that I think is really stunning about this. I've always thought of church as being a decades-long project. But this church is only three years old, and they already have leadership that's mature enough for Paul to say, I'm out, guys, and he leaves. In other words, we cannot assume as a church that you have to be 85 years old to be a mature Christian in leadership. These Christians had only known Christ for three years. And so often in church culture, we look at young people who have known Christ for 10 years or more, and we say, they're so immature, they're babies, they can't serve in leadership. And the reality is that we shoot ourselves in the foot by keeping people from serving who need to be learning how to serve. So one of the things that I want to point out The establishment of spiritual leadership is essential for the health of the church, and it's possible to do it within three years. Don't feel like there's no hope because some past generation didn't step up. Recognize that the God that founded this church in Ephesus is the God that founded our church in Holly. 
The God that gave the elders their spiritual gifts in Ephesus is the God that gives us spiritual gifts and calls us to serve in our local body here. And I believe that establishing faithful leadership that will bless our entire congregation is possible. I believe that Jesus wants to bless our church. And as we fight to put him first, as we examine our hearts and seek to follow his word, that we will be blessed as we follow the instructions he's given us in 1 Timothy for how the church should operate. And I want to pause and ask you, and I know this is a weird Sunday to do this because we've had surges and spikes and stuff. Uh, Some people had to stay home today, and many people are streaming online. So I'm addressing the people who are here and people I can't see, which is kind of challenging. But here's what I'd like to ask you to think, especially if you've been part of our church for a long time. Right now, the way our church leadership is set up We beg people to serve on our council every single year, and we still can't fill our council seats. We have vacancies every year, every year that I've been here, except for maybe one. And I think part of the problem is the seats that we have do not reflect spiritual leadership within the church. We're asking people to serve in capacities that don't reflect their giftings, And we allow the spiritual leadership of the church to really be neglected. Now, when I say that, I I don't, obviously, we value the word of God and obviously we value the preaching of the word. Many of you love learning in Sunday school. That's not what I mean. What I mean is the kind of loving oversight that a faithful shepherd engages in. I was listening to a lady that talked about being part of a church in college where she Uh, She joined the church on kind of a provisional basis because she wasn't going to live there forever. She was a college student, and so all college students are in a state of flux, right? You don't know where you're going to end up landing. And within the first week of her membership at this church where she knew no one, the elder who had been assigned to her called her in her dorm room and said, hey, I just want you to know who I am, that I'll be praying for you, and we want to know a little bit more about you. And he began a personal relationship with her. Guys, I've never been part of a church where that's been a reality for me. But that's what we want. Where a plurality of eldership can not only handle the word from the pulpit, but it can handle the word in your living room. Where there can be a close relationship between every part of the church where spiritual oversight and care is a reality. But right now, I believe we're so stuck in trying to preserve a culture of a council that doesn't meet those spiritual needs, this isn't possible. It's very hard to try to establish something like this while we continue in the older path. And I'm not saying it was bad. I'm not saying it was wrong. I'm saying moving forward, if we want to see the Lord bless our church, if we want to see people grow in maturity and spiritual maturity, I believe we need to go about it differently. I believe that we need to ask ourselves, what should church look like biblically? Does our church have a culture of making disciples? Or do we continue operating on recent traditions that are not functioning well 
that are not raising up future leaders. I've heard many people frustrated that, that no one wants to run for different council positions. I've heard people serving in council positions saying, you know, I don't know that I'm really qualified for this, but I'm willing. And that's not great. Now, let me say to you, if you're serving, thank God for you. I'm not trying to knock any of our current leaders. They've been faithful in many ways. But what I am saying is, church, let's go back to the word. Let's be like this church in Ephesus that's founded on the word, that puts Jesus first, and that worked to establish leaders that met the spiritual needs of the congregation. No book will help us with that more than 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is a gift of God to the church to help us understand how he wants us to work together. And so it's my prayer that we will find rich blessing as we seek to put it in practice. This might be uncomfortable. This might be crazy. But you know what? As we put the Lord Jesus first, I believe we have nothing to fear and everything to gain. Because you know what this word tells us? Is that we will have trouble no matter what. We absolutely will. And you know the best way to withstand trouble is firmly planted on the word of God, trusting Jesus. And so I want to invite you to follow along with me as we go through the book of 1 Timothy. I want to ask you, examine your own heart daily. Sometimes we propose ideas that are new and strange and, and maybe feel threatening. Let's all ask, am I being faithful to an idea or am I being faithful to Christ? Can we examine the scriptures together and find unity about what they teach us? And friends, I believe as we establish leaders here, it's not going to take decades. I believe that we can do it soon. And it's my prayer that we would find a solid church as we follow the Lord Jesus. In many ways, this message is the beginning of my series on 1 Timothy. And so I just want to ask, would you have an open heart with me as we look at what God says about how the church should be organized and structured? Would you have an open heart as we seek to follow the Lord Jesus? Would you commit to putting Jesus first in your life? Would you pray that our church would be established for generations to come as we follow the Lord. Would you pray with me now? Father, so many things in life change, but you remain the same. And Father, it's so easy to be afraid of different things, but you have promised us peace in Jesus. You have promised to supply our every need in Christ. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to faithfully follow him. Lord, I pray that he would be first in our lives, that you would reveal and remove things that are sinful in us. Father, I pray that you would help us to be established on your word and nothing else. And God, I pray for the loving family relationship that only you can create, that it would be real here. God, only you can do this work in us and among us, and I pray that you would. It's in Jesus' name I ask. Amen.